Good day, fellow human. Well, we are really motoring our way through James's epistle now, wiser this look back at the archives of a sermon series that myself, Sammy Davis, and former pastor Matt Bounds preached a good number of years ago. We're studying it, um, James that is, in our rooted groups. And my prayer is, my expectation is actually, as we've walked this path the last couple of weeks, that these sermons have been serving you as you've been studying James's epistle. This week, it's me once more, the second half of James chapter two, considering faith and different types of faith and landing up really at the sort of faith that Christians are supposed to have. So I don't really need to say any more, do I? Uh, I'm about to speak to you for 40 minutes on the topic. So I hope this blesses you, encourages you, challenges you and serves you in your faith. Ah, the book of James, wise up. James trying to teach us how to live out the Christian life. Um, I just want to start off with a warning this morning that my opening illustration has accents. So bear with me as I try and put some funny voices on. Have you ever heard the story of the two zookeepers? Chad, he's a, uh, see, bottling it. He's a Texan man. He's a zookeeper called Chad. Is that a Texan accent? I got it. American. And he's got um, a colleague, uh, an employee, you know, someone underneath him, a British counterpart called Jeffrey. Jeffrey works in the zoo with Chad, the Texan. Um, and one day they're on duty and they're in their little work van and they're driving out and they, they're going to go and do a job in the uh, elephant enclosure. And it's a hot day, so, you know, they pull up the van next to this big kind of oak tree and um, they start about doing a few things. Um, and Jeffrey, Jeffrey finds this birdhouse that's been given to him by Chad. And so he asks his supervisor, he asks his superior, what, what he's supposed to be doing with this. And so Chad t- turns to him and says, oh, you just got to put it in the trunk. So Jeffrey's thinking now, put it in the trunk? The trunk? What an odd job to put a birdhouse in an elephant's nose. I've never heard of such a thing. And then he twigs, doesn't he? Chad's an American. He's got this funny vocabulary thing going on. He doesn't mean trunk of an elephant. He means trunk, the boot. He wants him to put it in the boot. So off Jeffrey goes, and he puts it in the boot. And he turns around, and he finds Chad kind of looking all about the place. And he says, well, what's the matter, Chad? And Chad says, I can't see this birdhouse anywhere. And, and he looks where, where Chad is looking, and Chad is just looking at the tree. And obviously, now, he twigs it, doesn't he? That he had wanted him not to put it in the trunk of the van, but to put it in the trunk of the tree. To fix it to the tree. Okay, silly. The accents were better than the story, probably. I think you'll agree. Um, but I just, wanted, I just wanted to demonstrate how, how sometimes we use language uh, and words can mean different things. They can mean different things in terms of cross-culturally. Um, so people in America refer to um, a trunk as something completely different to us. But sometimes, even in our own culture, in our own context, we can use words with a variety of meaning. The trunk of a tree makes perfect sense to us whether we think, you know, trunk in terms of the boot or not. Um, and so it's not always a, a language culture barrier, but just a genuine breadth of meaning of a word, that we can use a word and, 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 and listen to a word, um, and it can mean different things. And that is pretty much what's happening when we come to James chapter 2. That's a similar situation we find ourselves in. When James starts to speak about faith 
and he starts to speak about words and deeds, it's not so much a culture barrier um, or, or, or a, a kind of, you know, American transatlantic barrier that's going on. But actually what's happening when we come to James chapter 2, the second half of James chapter 2, is that we realize that James himself is using words like faith in a number of different ways. And in fact, I'd say that as we come to James uh, James chapter 2, he's using the word faith and he's speaking about three different faiths. I don't know whether you got that when you read it through first time. When I studied it myself, I I spotted two, I'm going to be honest with you, different types of faith. Commentators had to help me out. But he speaks, just using that same word, faith, He's speaking about three distinct, different things. So that's basically what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at the different faiths that he suggests, speaks about, and hopefully kind of come to a pretty obvious conclusion about what type of faith we're supposed to have as Christians. Um, Clue to the fact that he's speaking about three different faiths um, there in verse 14. He says, can such a faith save them? Can such a faith save them? You know, there's, there's a subtle hint there, isn't there? That he's not asking the question, can faith save? Catch-all term. He's speaking very specifically about a type of faith. Can this kind of faith save them? And it's a good thing, too, that he's not asking, can faith save? Because we know when we come to our Bibles, when we read Scripture, that in fact it is only faith that can save. Salvation is found through faith alone, in Christ alone. So that's not his question. That's not the, that's not the question that we're asking when we come to James chapter 2. The question is, can such a faith save them? So we've got to be asking and, and wondering, well, what types of faith are you speaking about, James? And, and, and which type of faith are we trying to find out is saving faith? And he presents us with three options. And it's going to be pretty obvious as we go through it. He, he's He's not very favorable to two of them. And one of them he he speaks about in pretty glowing uh, terms. The first one is dead faith. The first one is dead faith. The faith of words and nothing more. An intellectual faith. Here's what he's describing in the first couple of verses here. 14, um, 15, 16, and 17. There's a, a friend, maybe a Christian friend, and they are without. They are in need. So a faith filled broad term, faith-filled person sees the need of somebody else and responds with kind words, perhaps even a prayer for them. And they say this, go in peace, have your fill. I hope that the dire situation that you're in right now doesn't carry on for much longer. I hope that you have something in the future. And James asks, okay, that faith, which has motivated that, that is displayed in that, what good is that? What good is a faith of mere words? What, what good is a faith that has, has speech but nothing else? What good is it, asks James, if we can say the right things, if we can know in our minds what needs to happen with this person, but that doesn't go anywhere? He says that's dead faith. And it's really just a faith that has only affected our intellect. You know what's right, you know what needs to be done, but it doesn't go any further than the realm of thinking, the the realm of our intellect and our minds. Dead faith is just an intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel. It's just saying, yes, these things are true. You know the doctrines of salvation, but have never submitted to Christ in your life. And James says, can that faith 
save? He says no. It's dead. It's dead faith. Quite plainly, he says that. A faith that finishes with words, a faith that has as its ultimate aim knowledge and words, he says, is, is dead. It's rubbish. It's useless. Can it save? No. And I'm glad that he uses this strong language as well. Because he doesn't just say it's, it's unfavorable. He doesn't just say it's a step in the right direction, but come on, guys, maybe we need to go further. I think sometimes we can do that, can't we? When we're dealing with people and we're dealing with issues, and we say, well, you're on the right track. You're on the right track, but let's just come on. Let's just get a couple more steps further down the journey. He says, no, if that's it, dead, useless, an absolute waste of time. And that death language is strong and it's important to us because we know, don't we, from Scripture that, that we are dead in our sins. And that to be a saved person means that you've been made alive. So when he starts speaking about this kind of faith, a faith that is just, oh, go, I hope somebody looks after you in the future. You know, a faith of the intellect, a faith of mere words, he says, there's still death there. There's still death reigning there. That faith hasn't saved one bit. It has no power to resurrect dead people like you and me. That's the first kind of faith he speaks about, dead faith. The second kind of faith that he speaks about, well, you might be surprised about this, but he speaks about demonic faith. Okay, that's a strong term to use now, but because it begins with a D. Um, but you see it there in verse 19. He says, you believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Here's the second kind of faith that he's speaking about when he's asking the question, can such a faith save? He says it's a little bit further than the first. It's not just about knowing and believing the right stuff and saying and confessing the right things. He says this demonic kind of faith, the second faith that we see displayed, is a faith that actually affects us in our emotions. So it goes further than just, okay, I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that there is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, all good things, boxes that we should be ticking on Trinity Sunday. He says it, it does actually go a little bit further than that. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. It's gone past their intellect now, and it's affecting their emotions. They have this emotional response. In the case of the demons, it's dread. It's fear. Perhaps even it's, it's hatred on their point that the things that they know to be true are true. They're gutted about it. They're repulsed. Demonic faith, it's just that one step further than dead faith, whereas a person who was touched not just in their mind, but in their intellect. And actually, I think this is something that we can suffer from as well. We can be emotionally affected by the truth of the gospel. We can know that you know the facts, and it can emotionally affect us. But still, it leaves us in what kind of state? Well, he says, useless and empty. I mean, we can be sorry, can't we? We can hear that God is a holy God. We sing it holy, 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 and we can feel guilty. We can feel grateful, perhaps. Oh, Jesus has done so much to us. I feel grateful. There's many kind of emotional responses that the truth of the scriptures, the truth of what Jesus, who he is and what he's done can elicit from us. But if it's just mental and it's just emotional, James says it's dead and it's useless, it's empty, it's worthless. What's the point? It's not doing the demons any good that they know that there's one God if, if all that's happening is that they're afraid about it. Most of us probably think that within those two categories now, there's, there's enough there for faith. That rather, faith is an intellectual 
agreement or an emotional response. They're kind of the two gods of our age, aren't they? The intellect and the emotions. And that if those two things are being covered, then you've got it all. You've got proper faith. You know the truth and you, and you feel it. You feel it in your, in your gut. Yet he's damning of such faith. Again, he uses strong language. And he's, he's not saying, oh, boys, ah, there we are. Just one kind of rung higher up the ladder. We'll get you going in the right direction. He says it's dead. If it's absent, it works. It's useless and it's pointless. And actually, the fact that he calls out these two kind of faiths, dead faith, demonic faith, the faith of the intellect, the faith of the emotional response, is, is surprising, actually, isn't it? He's writing to the first century church, and he's calling out the two great philosophies of the very recent past, modernism, postmodernism. You see them both there. You know, the modern, modernism of the, of the 19th century, the early 20th century, that said, you know what, if we can think it, if we can rationalize it, if we can have it logistically sorted out in our head, then it's real, then it's true. Everything was in the brain, you know, the kind of scientific enlightenment era. Okay, we can put a formula to it. We can know it. Therefore, it's true. Therefore, it's real. That's, that's, that's the God of modernism. And he says, well, if all you, it's quite dismissive, isn't it? He's saying, if all you're doing is thinking it, then what good is that? And then postmodernism, you know, that kind of, um, what, what you feel is true. You know, postmodernism, which came in when people realized that modernism wasn't all that, who says, okay, well, we've known a lot of stuff and hasn't got us very far, so now we're going to have to rely on our emotions. Now we're going to have to rely on how things make us feel. We'll decide whether something is true and whether it's real by how we respond to it in our hearts and the kind of the feeling, the fuzziness that it gives us. Intellect, emotions, and he says to both of them, no, nah, I'm not having any of that. He says, that is not good for you. That is not good for the Christian. If that's all you've got, then you're dead. You're useless. There's nothing happening. So yeah, he's not very favorable for the first two. So let's see if he's a bit more favorable for the last one then. There is a third type of faith that he's speaking about. And he hints at it first of all in verse 8. Some of you, verse 18, some of you will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And he comes back and he says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. So see, he's not down on faith. He's down on particular types of faith, dead faith, demonic faith. But he says there is a third type of faith that actually is a good thing and is a positive faith. And that faith is a doing faith. A faith that is seen in actions as well as the words and the emotions. Read again verse 24 near the end. He says that you see a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, it's important that we're, that we're being cautious and we're reading Scripture properly here because he doesn't say a person is justified by what he does and not by faith. He says a person is justified, is, is made right with God by what he does and not by faith alone. Because those first two types of faith Dead faith, demonic faith, the faith of the mind, the faith of just our emotions and our emotional responses are faith alone. They're faith that doesn't result in anything else. They're faith that doesn't have any kind of fruit or evidence or anything like that. But a doing faith, the doing faith that he's encouraging the church into is the faith of actions, the faith of work, a faith which has taken control of the mind, taken control of the heart, 
and has taken control of the will of the person as well. That there's this response. That now that the mind and the heart have been overtaken by the truth, they want to do something. They want to live something out. There wants to be evidence to the faith that we have got. Calvin uh, famously, famously articulates it like this. He says, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Does that make sense? It is faith alone that justifies. You are made right by God only by trusting in Christ. But if you've been justified, if you have that faith, it won't be a dead faith, it won't be a demonic faith, it'll be this doing faith. Faith that justifies can never, ever be alone. It's faith by itself that he's decrying. It's faith by itself that he's saying is useless. Faith, true faith, living faith, saving faith, he says, is never by itself. It's lived out. It's an alive faith. And therefore, you see it in people's lives. I think actually the reason that this kind of jars against us is because we've fallen into the trap of thinking that we're saved by faith in faith. Does that make sense? We're saved by faith in faith. That we think that believing in something, kind of in the generic way of understanding that, is what we need. But it's not. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it's faith in Jesus Christ and his death in our place that saves us. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in Christ. And faith in Christ, if you read any of the scriptures, brings real, visible life. And so James comes in and he just says, yeah, well, where is that life? Is it just in our thoughts? No. Is it just in our emotional response? No. It's in the things that we do. I hope there are people listening well this morning. Call back to two weeks ago. Um, and I hope you're listening well. And I hope you're asking the question, well, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right that, you know, he's not slamming faith and there is this kind of area for works and, and, and that. But what is the gospel truth that's being applied to life? Because we've been going through the book of James and we've been doing it under the title of Wise Up. And you said, I set my stall out early, didn't I? That James has taken a gospel truth, the truth about God, the world, and us, what Jesus has done, and he's applying it to life. So what is that truth? What is the thing that he's trying to get the church to unpack and, and to live out? Well, here's what I think that he's trying to unpack. I think he's actually trying to unpack one of the greatest chapters on faith alone in Scripture. I think he's trying to unpack truths that we read in Genesis in Genesis chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, not even close. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see it presented so, so clearly that there's a time when without Christ, beyond Christ, we are dead. That's how Paul describes us. Dead in our transgressions. Dead in our sins. He says, without Jesus, you're corpses. You're rotting, stinking messes. Without Jesus, because of sin, you're under wrath, you're under judgment, and that's it. You're a stinking corpse. You don't do anything. You just stink the place out. You're dead. You're lifeless. But as he goes on in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Such a wonderful chapter, which puts it plainly, you know, as the nose in your face, black and white, it's not what we've done that makes us right with God. It's what God has done. 
It's by his grace, it's by his mercy, it's by his love. All three words are there that we are saved. Dead people being brought to life. I don't know whether you've watched Casualty, Holby, any of these doctors kind of programs. Dead people don't bring themselves back to life. When someone's heart stops, it's it's the medical team that gets around them. If you're dead, you don't bring yourself back to life. And that's what Paul is, is clearly laying out here. He's saying, you were dead, now you're alive. Somebody else has intervened on your behalf, and that person is God in Christ. That's how you're saved, okay? There's your gospel truth. But that language and that picture of being dead and being brought back to life is what James really is catching hold of. He's saying, okay, well, if you were a rotting, stinking corpse before, and now by faith you have been saved, what difference? You said that you've gone from death to life, from being a corpse to being a living, breathing, um, fully human being in Christ. What difference? Well, lots of difference. Because living people look different, act different, sound different, smell different to corpses, don't they? A living person is completely and utterly different to a corpse, to a dead person. So James really is just saying, live a little. Be alive. Do the things that living people do. Stop living like a corpse and start actually demonstrating and showing signs of life. If you've ever seen any of those kind of paramedic medical dramas or whatever, when people die, there's, when people are in trouble, there's two things that they check for to see whether they're still alive, isn't it? First of all, they check to see if they're breathing. And second of all, they check to see if there's a pulse. If they're breathing and that there's a pulse or one or the other or, or something like that, I've not done a degree in it, um, they know that that person is alive. And James is just saying, well, if you've got a faith that saves, there's going to be a pulse. There's going to be breathing. There's going to be evidence that you are actually alive. He says that faith which is only affecting our minds, thinking things, saying things, no pulse. That faith that only affects our emotions, he says, no breathing. He says, actually, if you've been brought from death to life, if you've been changed from a corpse to a fully alive human being in Christ, he says, there'll be both. There'll be visible signs of life. There'll be action. There'll be doing. Dead faith is the intellect. Demonic faith is the emotions. True faith, faith that saves, he says, engages the entire person, the will, everything that we do. All of a sudden, our desires and our actions, they're all in line with the fact that we trust in Jesus and we live them out. So he says we're not saved. We're not saved by faith just in a generic way. We're not definitely not saved, he says, by faith in these two specifically bad ways intellect and emotions alone. He says, when we have a saving faith in Jesus, when we see Jesus revealed to us in the word, when dead people come alive, that faith does. And so he says this third faith, which is a good faith, it justifies us, it puts us right with God. He says that faith is a dynamic faith. It's a doing faith. It's a lived out faith, mind, heart, and will. The mind understands, the the heart desires, and the will acts upon it. Now, how do we we understand all of this? Because we definitely, definitely, definitely will come to a passage like James 2, as Martin Luther did, and kind of think, well, he's, he's, he's saying faith, yes, but he's really pushing us towards the plus. 
And we've taught on numerous occasions in this church that faith in Christ plus anything else is not salvation. So how does James here, saying that if you've got faith, you've got to work it out, and it's it's by what um, Abraham did and what Rahab did that they made right with God and counted righteousness and called friends of God, that kind of doing faith, how does that at all marry, how does that all come together with what we read in Paul? about faith alone, about a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, because of his great love for us, God, rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions by grace you have been saved. How do we marry the two together? Isn't there some kind of internal feuding here in the Bible? Some kind of contradiction where it's teaching one thing on the one hand and another thing on the other hand? No. No, there's no contradiction. Um, I hope so far I've done a good enough job of explaining to you that the kind of faith that James is speaking about. But let's just clear, clarify this. Imagine the, the, the aim of salvation, okay, this is going to be visual, is to get someone into the middle of the stage. Is to get someone into the middle of the stage. How would you tell that person to get to the middle of the stage if they were standing over here by the singers? John, how would you get me over to the middle of the stage? Right, well, you do it in sign language, so because you're trying to be clever. Um, Matt, come on, behave yourself now. Yeah, which way would you tell me to go? You tell me to walk right. My right, yeah, and I'd walk, and look, I found the middle of the stage. Now then, if I'm playing the piano this morning, because why not? You're all tone deaf. Um, how would you get me to the middle of the stage now? Would you tell me to go right? Because you, you know, you've seen it over there, you want me to go right. How would you get me to the middle of the stage? You tell me to go right? No, you tell me to go left. Now, is Matt contradicting himself? Is Matt just confused on the one hand telling people to go right, on the other hand telling people to go left, you know, chaos reigning? No. He's directing people in different situations to the middle of the stage. It's a little bit like what's going on here. Because actually, when Paul is waxing lyrical about saving faith by faith and grace alone, he's speaking to people who are in a different situation to James. Paul, if you like, is speaking to people at the beginning of the Christian life. People who are asking the question, how do I get right with God? How, how can I be saved? What, what does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be counted righteous? How can the sin that I've got be dealt with and taken away? And he says, do you know what? Do it all. By faith in Christ alone. And then James comes along and he's looking at a a group of people who aren't kind of wondering, is this something I do? Is this something somebody else does? You know, do I need to to follow the law and circumcision to be right with God? No, Paul says, no, of course you don't. It's faith alone in Christ alone. He is the one who saves. He is the one who justifies. Then James comes along. He's not speaking to the same group of people. He's not speaking to people who are asking that question. He's speaking to people who have got this who have got faith alone and think, you know what, that is my meal ticket. That is my way out of having to do anything ever again. These are probably people who are further down the line in their Christian lives. And he's saying, well, look, you've all kind of got this faith alone in Christ alone, but I can't see that that's true. I can't see that actually going forward in the Christian life, that means anything to you. If you're like, Paul is speaking to people at the start of the Christian life, and he's saying, you've got you've to gotta get right with God by trusting in Jesus. And James is coming along to people who've been Christians for five years, 10 years, 15 years, and he's saying, do you know what? If you've been raised right with God, let, let's see that that's a reality. 
let's see that you've got a pulse, that you're breathing. He's, he's answering a different question. He's speaking to people who are struggling with different problems. One with a group of people who just want to know how to get right with God in the first place, and another group of people who are just like, I don't know whether I need to bother doing anything ever again in my life or if I can just veg in this recliner sofa for the rest of my days. They, they speak into different people, so they're not contradicting each other. But actually, I think when we characterize Paul as simply saying, you know, trust in Jesus and nothing else, then we're actually doing him a disservice. Um, for a start, you've got there Ephesians chapter 2, wonderful passage about trusting faith, what God does not us. If I'd have carried on reading, we'd have read some words about, you know, it's not by faith, uh, it's not by works, but it is by faith alone, which is a gift in itself, but we are saved for good works. He goes on to speak about, but this is one of the passages I really love on this. Titus chapter 3. We were looking at this in Hope Gwendrite a few weeks ago. This is Paul writing, okay? Uh, and he writes this, Ch Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we've done, not by our works, not by our deeds, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and re renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. What a wonderful passage, which just explains about how it's, it's got nothing to do with us. It's all in the love of God. It's all in the kindness of God. It's all in the, 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 the Trinity working together for our salvation and the wonderful gift of it, becoming heirs with the hope of eternal isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just a marvelous description of what God has done for us? Not what we have done in order to get salvation, but what he has done for us. Faith, grace, we're saved. But if you read the very next verse, he says this, this is a trustworthy saying, what he's just said. And I want you to stress these things, Titus, in the church, in Crete, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God by faith may carefully devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Paul says, I want you to remind these people of what Jesus has done for them, of how God has loved them and how the Holy Spirit has made that effectual in their lives. I want you to stress that so that they live it out. So that there'll be a people whose faith is more than just their intellect and their emotions, but will be their doing and their deeds and their work. The two go hand in hand. If we're saved by faith, a real living faith, then we live it out. It'll be a visible faith. Paul, Paul is warning against works which compete with faith. James is encouraging works which complete our faith or complement our faith, evidence it. Paul is asking, how do you get right with God? James is saying, once you're right with God, what does that look like? What does that mean for the rest of my life? And he gives two examples, really. He gives two examples, just so we're clear about it. Um, they're familiar to us, I'm sure, especially if you were here when we were going through the book of Joshua, or if you were with us in Hope Gwendrath when we were going through Genesis. Um, and they're examples of dynamic, doing faith. But I think they're really helpful examples to us because other than this doing faith that these two characters he shows us have, they couldn't be more different today. He picks on two people, Abraham, who's a Jew, people of God, a man, someone who you get that description of, a friend of God, and then Rahab, the other person he picks out, who's a Gentile, who's a woman, 
Someone who's known not as a friend of God, but apparently as a prostitute, part of the enemy of God uh, at the time. And when they're in Joshua, when they're going through into the promised land. The only thing that these two examples have in common are that they exercise saving faith in God. And that results in works. That results in works. Rahab's one is the one that catches my imagination the most because in it I see the other kinds of faith. I see the other kind of faiths which are absolutely useless. If, if you were, you don't need to turn there. I can read you the passage. It's in the start of Joshua chapter 2 when the spies go to, to view Jericho and they go and she, she, she shelters them in her house. And then we read this. She goes up to the roof to speak to them and she says this to them. I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear um, of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Okay? So everyone around, everyone in the city of Jericho has heard the things about God. They've heard the things about the Israelites who are coming. They've got kind of that intellectual knowledge. They know when they, they'd be able to call God um, the, the appropriate things. And they've even got this emotional response. Fear of the Lord. It speaks about their hearts melting inside of them. They're scared. They're afraid. You've got those kind of dead and demonic kind of faiths at play. But Rahab is the only one whose faith goes that little bit further. Whose faith is a saving faith, a, a real faith that causes action and doing and works in her life. She's the only one in the entire city who does something about God having heard him and had this emotional response. Everyone's hearts melt with him, yet yet Rahab alone is the one who responds with dynamic faith. She shelters these spies, she helps them go out, and she encourages them to come back and to complete their mission. And what does it say in, in James? It says that she's counted right before God. It says that she's justified. So the wisdom is this then this morning for us. The wisdom is this. If we've been taken from death to life, let's live like living people. Let's have a pulse. Let's have a breath. Let's have a heartbeat. Let's do things which are in accord or in line with the fact that we've been saved by faith in Christ. That's, that's the wisdom. But let's try and answer that first question that um, James asks again to round up. Can such a faith save? Can such a faith save? And it is faith that saves. There's no mistake about that. We can only get right with God by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and faith in that and trusting in that. Yet, if that faith just looks like answering things on a test, saying the right words to people, encouraging words to people, then the answer is no. It hasn't made you alive. That faith hasn't done the thing which scriptures promises it will do, hasn't taken you from death to life, hasn't taken you from judgment to heirship. If that faith, if that faith only causes an emotional response in you, that could be singing and dancing and clapping and happiness. It could be guilt It could be sorrow over your past life. If that's all that it's done, James says no. Bible says no. Such a faith cannot save. But he says if your faith in Christ, who has looked upon you 
as a guilty person before God, as an enemy God, uh, God, as a rebel against the one who has created you. If your faith in Christ has looked at that, seen what Jesus has done on your behalf, responded, been taken from darkness into life, from guilt into innocence, from judgment into being adopted as sons and daughters in God's family, and works itself out, changes how you live. He says such a faith, yes, can and will save, has saved. I suppose that leaves us with a warning then this morning, doesn't it? A warning on the one hand for those of us who have put our hands up and said, yes, we've trusted in Jesus. Check your pulse. Check your pulse to see whether that's a real thing that's happened. See if there's breathing. Because if if you've been a Christian for 10 years and your life shows absolutely no signs of change other than the fact that you come along to church once a week, then you've got to start asking questions, haven't you? Have I really been brought to life? Or am I still a stinking corpse? But the warning, I suppose, is even stronger for anybody here this morning who hasn't trusted in Christ. Because the, the, the invitation is to be saved by faith alone. But there's a warning in that if you are trusting in Christ by faith alone to be saved, the warning is it will change you. It will change your life. It necessarily has to change your life. You will stop being a dead person and you will be an alive person. And that will mean the things that you do and the way that you act will be different. That's an encouragement as well as a warning, I suppose. Because I don't think we like carrying on in our sin. I don't think we like carrying on in our rebellion against God. But you know what? Lots of people have known the right things. Demons have known the right things and responded to it. And it's been for naught. It's been for nothing. It hasn't helped one tiny bit. But Christ calls us to follow him by faith, which actually means following him. He promises that we'll be taken from death to life. And the warning is that that life looks different to the death that we were experiencing before. James says, can such a faith save? Yes. If that faith results in us living, then yes, that faith has saved. So it doesn't matter, I suppose, whether we've been saved for decades or whether we've been saved maybe even for just a few moments. It's faith that does that shows us that faith has done. Faith that does shows us that faith has done. The power of the gospel is to change us, and that's what we're looking at in the whole of the book of James. Wise up, applying what Jesus has done to our lives. And that goes right to the very fundamental, that if we've trusted in him, we will live differently. We will do things. We will be more than words, more than intellect more than even emotions but we'll have a pulse and we'll be breathing as christians i'm going to pray and then the band are going to come up and then the band are going to come up and then the band are going to come up and then the band are going to come up and then the band are going to come up and then the band are going to come up and then the band are going to come up and then the band are going to come up and then the